0: What words would you choose to maybe describe your art? Perhaps subversive, uh, experimental, and um, unpredictable.
1: Hello, my name is Kashka, and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tatewood Community Garden, where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature, and climate change. Since the 70s, every year on the 22nd of April, people around the world have been taking part in Earth Day to demonstrate their support for protecting life on our planet. So for this month's episode, we have decided to speak to Pinky McClure, whose unusual art often explores how we humans have been affecting the places we all call home and her personal responses to modern environmental issues. Before listening, you may want to have a look at the pieces we discuss by following links in the episode notes. So today I have the pleasure of talking to a local Tapewood artist about her work, which uh, often focuses on environmental issues and which uses a rather unusual medium. And I think it's best if I leave it to her to introduce herself and her
0: art. Hello, I'm Pinky McClure. I'm a stained glass artist. I'm using a medieval art form to explore contemporary issues. Before I saw any of yours,
1: uh, the usuals sort of association with stained glass art would make me think about windows in old churches or maybe fancy Victorian stained glass doors, um, which I think, you know, if you come up with three words to describe this kind of stuff is religious, conservative and pretty. but when I'm thinking about your stuff it's stunning, surprising and challenging so it's very contrasting to the the traditional way of looking at it. What words would you choose to
0: maybe describe your art? Perhaps subversive, uh, experimental and um, unpredictable Uh, maybe as well actually uh, funny, I'd I'd like to inject some humour in because I think Um, I'm often exploring very serious subject matter and I don't want to put people off by being miserable or preaching and I think that having a little dark humour which you find in stained in, in old stained glass anyway I think that can be really useful to Draw people
1: in. So I mean, I find that I found that it certainly your your stuff makes you think and makes you feel, and certainly did that for me. And one of the most impactful pieces I've seen of yours is a um, self-portrait, dreaming of Portavali, um, which is touching on some very painful childhood memories. I guess. Um, can you tell us more about it?
0: Yes. Well, I I am. Um, this is a piece at which I made only two or three years ago. And it's uh, a self portrait done in a in the style of a medieval window. A, a lot, it, it was based around uh, a window from York Minster, which is the most amazing medieval glass in Britain is in, in York Minster. Um, but I changed the story from being a Bible story to being a personal story about an event in my childhood. When I was growing up, I was very lucky because my granddad had a cottage in a very wild and remote part of Argyle. And um, we used to go and spend the summer there. And it was very unspoilt and beautiful. Hardly anybody lived there. There weren't really any holiday cottages or caravans, not, not much at all. It was just... a a rather dilapidated cottage with no electricity or running water, right on the edge of a very beautiful, shallow, sandy loch called the Salon. And um, we used to go there and and swim. As very small children, it was very safe to swim there because it was so shallow and and sandy. And, you know, you'd have seals and dolphins and basket sharks and see all sorts of things without having to go very far out into Loch Vine at all. It was it was really idyllic and and everybody in our family would say that our happiest memories are of that place and my mum and dad even had their honeymoon there. They couldn't afford much of a honeymoon but they had, they had their honeymoon there and it really was beautiful and you know I remember as a small child I actually used to be slightly embarrassed because you know you'd you'd go back to school and people would say, where were you for your holidays? And I'd say, we went to Portavadi. And they'd go, where's that? You know, it was so obscure. Nobody had heard of Portavadi. Until in the 1970s, when the oil industry took off in Scotland, the uh, government at the time decided that it would be a good idea to develop the area. And they scandalously... Basically allowed allowed a private company who made um, oil rig platforms to completely devastate the area around our house. They they put explosives in the bottom of the loch to make it into a very deep gully. Um, they built a large concrete workers' village. They put roads through the place. I mean, really, it was it was utterly utterly devastated Um, and then the company went bankrupt very soon afterwards within a couple of years and the place just sat there and this is taxpayers money as well that we're talking about you know millions of pounds because the the company went bankrupt you know they, they had no liability for the damage that they'd done they weren't obliged to do anything so it just sat there for decades and um, eventually a, a hotel company bought it. I imagine they got it extremely cheaply and uh, there's now a spa hotel and a marina there. The story that I just told you was largely forgotten and covered up really um, by the government and I decided to make a window telling that story because it's it was one of the most devastating things that happened to me um, it really in my young in my youth uh, felt really strongly about it and I suppose it opened my eyes at a, a young age. I was about 10 or 11 when this happened to the, the the non to the vulnerability of our environment and to the extraordinary ruthlessness of human beings. That when they see money, the possibility of money and jobs in an area that perhaps not many people know about, to just destroy it. And it really sort of shaped my um, awareness to environmental destruction. So I made this window telling that story with of, of myself dreaming about Portavadi, remembering Porto remembering the freedom of running about in Portavati and the beauty of the place, but also remembering the destruction and the way that these huge razor wire fences were erected all all around my granddad's cottage and just remembering the good and bad sides of it and, you know, to try and sort of tell the the truth about what happened through art.
1: Yeah, um, I certainly found it quite powerful, especially when you tell the story because it's sort of, um, it's a beautiful piece and it's got lots of elements, but it's lovely to be able to hear your personal story behind it. Um, and it's it certainly resonated with me because I, I've very frequently have, I'm sure many other people also have felt that sort of sense of massive grief when humans end up destroying our landscapes that we love and that live um live or have experienced, especially in our childhood. I mean, that's such a such a close
0: connection. Um, Yes, it's when you're that age, it doesn't occur to you that such a thing, that such a place won't just be there forever. Mm. And it is like a
1: bereavement. Mm. In my climate work, I've explored sort of climate grief, climate anxiety. This is certainly something that's even catching the headlines now. This profound Mm. sense of grief of how climate emergency is transforming the world around us, the things that we love. Uh, and it's, it's definitely um, feels like this work is embodying um, such a sense of grief, uh, a destruction. And there's even, I don't know if you're aware, but there's even a, a word that is supposed to describe that sense of grief because it's been explored by climate psychologists. Oh, really? It's solastalgia huh. and it was coined by a philosopher and a psychologist who worked with communities in New South Wales. In Australia, where I come from, so it's a very strong connection there. Um, and communities that have been affected by prolonged drought and also by all the coal mining in Hunter Valley. It's I think it's a very poetic and beautiful word, as just as poetic as, as your work is. Yeah. And um, I'm just gonna read out the definition and what, what people say about it, what's supposed to represent the homesickness you have when you are still at home. Um mm. And your home environment is changing in ways you find distressing. I think that your piece is, speaks exactly to this feeling and it's a beautiful illustration of it. It's a beautiful
0: acknowledgement of all this stuff that happens in our hearts. I mean, I'm I'm so glad about that because I, you know, I can still remember individual rocks and bits of moss that you know that that are now not there mm-hmm. because they were blown up. And you know, they, we used to give them names. You know, my my brother had. A rock that he particularly used to like climbing up and sitting on top of, and we used to call it Collins Rock. You know, it's not there anymore. Mm. It's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Another
1: reason I brought this piece up is because it's actually been purchased by the National Museum of Scotland, and uh, I think it's being prepared for exhibition when it reopens. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And um... yes,
0: I, I was delighted because the National Museum of Scotland. Uh, contacted me, um, having seen the work online, I think, Um, and they have purchased it to display in their environment section of the museum. And it will be on display soon. The museum should be opening soon. And they actually purchased it just before lockdown. So it will be going on display. And I'm, I was just thrilled about that, because I really felt that I was, I'd been able to let people know about what had happened. When I when I was researching it to, to come up with some text to accompany it for the exhibition, I realised that there's not there wasn't really any information that I could find online, All all you can find out about is this luxury hotel that's there now. And that seemed really appalling to me you know and you know most of the people that were there at the time have died and I've, I kind of felt like I was the only person seemed to be the only person left to tell the story so it, being able to tell that story because there there will be a lot of information with it in the in the display in the National Museum of Scotland it, it's wonderful to be able to tell people what happened because you know lots of people don't know they nobody has heard a port of portavadi and people have heard it now because of this hotel so I you know I'm That that was very gratifying.
1: Would you maybe like to tell us a bit about how you actually came up with you know using stained glass and how did you arrive at this as a way of expressing
0: yourself and how did you get started basically? Well, my it's a strange way round, really, because my partner he had been doing stained glass as a hobby. This is going back over 20 years ago. Um, he was making stained glass as a hobby. It's not something I would have ever considered trying because it involves a lot of precision and it didn't seem to me at that time to involve really any creativity because most stained glass is just made to existing patterns, very simple patterns or it's it's restoring old windows. Um, and that, that was mainly what he was doing, was making Victorian or art nouveau stained glass windows for people's houses. Anyway, he, he was doing that and he was getting lots of work and I needed some, some work because I I was out of work. So I helped him and I that carried on for about 15 years and I wasn't really that interested in the work. It was just a job to me and I f- actually found it very frustrating and disappointing because as time went on, I started to realise that the stained glass that I re- really liked was this really crazy narrative stained glass that that was being made in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. That's really fascinating and bizarre and funny. And I didn't like the kind of it being reduced to being decorative. I didn't like the dumbing down of it, especially in the 20th century, when art became very much more into abstraction. And also as, as the churches were asking for less and less narrative stained glass or any stained glass at all. It was kind of seemed like it was disappearing. The the narrative storytelling element of it seemed to be disappearing, and it was becoming just blocks of colour. And I just found that really not very creative. And I decided after a while that I wanted to start making my own version of these medieval church windows without the religion, but with my stories instead, from my life and the world around me. And that's, I started doing that really only about six or seven years ago. Oh, wow. And, and that's that's now all I do, which is brilliant because I don't have to do any of that boring stuff anymore that I did that I hated doing. And I mean, the thing that's been great for me is that it's it's just from day one, people were interested in the work. I really wasn't sure how it'd be received. I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm wasting my time. It's really labor- slow, laborious work. You know, am I going to spend two months making something and then everybody just goes, mm, <laughs> it looks like a church window, but why are you doing that? But then that never happened. People were just immediately interested. Yeah. So I've
1: just kept going. So you hit on the ma- magical sort of combination. Um, it was
0: just, yeah, really, really lucky. But then I suppose, you know, if I if I was thinking that, then other people maybe were as well. Or people just maybe didn't realise it was possible to do that. Mm, mm. that. I got really upset because people go, like, oh, "I don't like stained glass," and I think, "Yeah, but that's because you're not seeing its possibilities. You're just seeing what people are doing with it when they, they buy the cheapest glass and do the simplest thing." And I, I you know, it's it's it is very complex and laborious, but it's also for me quite therapeutic because I can really delve into. My mind and my anxieties and sort of pour it all into the work, yeah, so interesting journey into into this world
1: Let's talk about the second piece we've got um chosen for this um, conversation, and I think this is your pick um, and um, it's one of your earlier works isn't it? yeah uh, it's, and it's called landfill tantrum. Could you maybe tell us why you picked it as a an example and when I'm looking at it um to me, the first sort of impression is this uh, big red, angry. It's <laughs> <circle. laughs> so
0: cool. Well, it's well, the right impression. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of the first pieces that I made, and it was the first piece that I had exhibited in a gallery. Um, and I didn't really know what it was about. I just did a very rough, spontaneous sketch. And as, as time went on, I sort of thought, well, what what is this? What is this rage all about? And I realised it was frustration at landfill waste, rubbish, and just this the feeling of not being able to do anything about it, which still exists, sadly. This, you know, and this is I think I did this one in 2013, and you know, that's uh, what eight years on, it's, we still haven't managed to deal with this so that's that's what that's about that and that's why it's called landfill tantrum because it's just that frustration of feeling like you're you're creating a world full of rubbish and unable to solve the problem
1: mm. can you maybe tell me a little bit more about the elements of it
0: yes the the well the animals in it are there because they're basically in despairing of human hopelessness and incompetence. Yeah, so you can
1: see that um this animals surround that angry circle and there's lots of like, accusatory fingers pointed at the people.
0: The accusatory fingers are probably coming from the large corporations going, No, you you've got to deal with this or the or the government saying oh, no no, you know, you've got to recycle your it's 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 your problem, it's your problem. And, of course we can't as consumers, it's it's, all, it's almost impossible yeah, for us.
1: Created to, by the system and just dumped yeah. onto individuals as a responsibility. Yeah. 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 Well that's interesting. I see as as soon as you start asking questions and unpicking any one of your pieces, you just like this layers and layers and layers of meaning. It's it's pretty amazing. That's why I love um I love just Thank looking you. at the details. And it's so important to talk to you about it because <laughs> Um, but at, at the same time you can interpret stuff the way you um you know you want as well. The central figure here is a
0: female figure, and with a sort of halo, I think. Uh yes. Well that was actually just because as this was one of my earlier pieces, there was a gap <laughs> which I had to fill in. So I just stuck some bits of glass in. And also what you might find interesting is that most of the glass in this and which I'm still using is secondhand. Salvaged glass um, in 2000, I think it was 2000 and short, maybe even 2013. I can't remember, it was shortly before I made this piece because I, I was still working with my partner running a stained glass business. We had made some really big church windows for a church in Muirhead of Lif, near Dundee. Um, and they were replacing some old windows that were very badly damaged, which had red borders in them. And the red glass is a, was very good quality glass. So I basically took, spent a very long time taking apart. I saved all that, salvaged all that red glass, and, which was all small bits. Mm. And I'm still using that today. And, I've, and this this window that you're looking at now, landfill tantrum, is made nearly almost entirely of that glass. And a lot of the, the lead lines are there just because I'm using very small scraps of glass mm. rather than big sheets.
1: I like um, the insight into your process. It's not, it doesn't seem to be a linear process.
0: No, it's not really. It's quite chaotic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but if, perhaps that's sort of a, a joy in exploring the space that you sort of
0: creating it. Um, I like And I quite like the fact that. I'm not always in control of what's happening so in that instance I didn't have a big enough piece of glass to have the man the man on the top left I think he's got a big line going through his leg for example yeah. because I had two bits of glass and I I didn't have one bit of glass that was big enough so I just had to stick two bits together and put you have to stick them together with the lead and
1: but perhaps it, I mean sort of, I used to say that you draw your inspiration from medieval work, mm-hmm. um, and that that probably was the reality of working with glass. glass was such a precious oh, um, material that people just had to make do with one.
0: Yes, they oh, abs- absolutely, and and it's evolved into a a style because of that. And I I love the that slightly crazy, anarchic, chaotic style of very old stained glass. When stained glass is hundreds and hundreds of years old, it becomes damaged. It's glass, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, and It's amazing, it survives at all. Um, and in the past, especially when it was damaged, a, a, a broken piece might be replaced with just whatever piece of glass they could find. It could be anything, you know, and and they couldn't afford to do it the way we would do it now. So they used to just sort of stick any bit of glass in there and and, and add lines to join it all together. Yeah, which gives that.
1: So um, we're talking a little bit about the process now. I've seen your studio and all the quite complicated equipment you you, you use. I wondered whether you could tell us a bit more about where you source your glass apart from sort of recycled and what makes it special and
0: how you really put it together physically. How do you create that artwork physically? Um, The glass I use is a combination of scraps I've got left from when we used to have a business. And I buy hand-blown flashed glass. Flashed glass is a very specialised process. Basically, they blow a sheet of glass... And make a cylinder out of it and then when it's still soft they flatten it out into a sheet and in the process of doing that they have somehow <laughs> made two colors on one side you have a color on the other side you have clear glass and that gives you the possibility of creating lighter areas within the glass by removing the color you can remove the areas of color either with acid etching or sandblasting or engraving and then once you've done that you can paint darker colors onto that lighter area i almost entirely use flashed glass it's otherwise it's very very limiting material to work with
1: and do you usually sort of create a picture of the whole
0: thing in one go and then sort of no i do i have to make, you have to make a plan otherwise you you know you never know what size it's going to be and it, it you have to fit fit the pieces together. So you have to make a plan that has a kind of skeleton of the shapes and sizes of of the different pieces of glass. The way I work usually nowadays is I usually make a digital collage. So I'll maybe do a very rough sketch first, and then make a digital digital collage using that and adding in imagery that I find on the internet or just or my own drawings. And then I just copy that by hand onto a plan. Then I start cutting out the the first piece of glass and do all the painting and engraving and sandblasting that needs to be done on that. And then just kind of build it up like that. But I usually make lots of changes as I as I go and get uh, ideas for new pieces. So so the plan usually has lots and lots and lots and lots of corrections on it. <laughs> Yeah, hence all the little surprises and layers of meaning i think i think that's sort of yes well that's it i mean and i very often i'm still to a certain extent working out as i go along what it is that i'm trying to say and how to say it and because because the work's very slow and takes you know weeks or months i get new ideas as a you know, maybe halfway through making it, I'll think, oh, I'll put one of these in or, you know, I'll read about something that's happened and and think I'll include that as well. And um, that's part of the fun for me, because to just work precisely from a plan, I think I would just find that a bit boring. Yeah,
1: I like this idea of using artisanal materials, old um, handmade glass and Mm. Um, secondhand stuff as well as sort of having this slow meditative process, it, it feels like it's um moving away from fast digital, um, fast moving world. Yes. It, it allows you to sort of slow down and appreciate the, the, the material, the handmadeness of it all.
0: Oh, yeah, it's 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 massively therapeutic. I mean, you know, I, I used to suffer very badly from anxiety, and I found it's really helped that because. It's slow, and I I just love the slowness of it. And you can't do it quickly. There's no way you can do it quickly. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, So I wanted
1: to move on to the next piece, which was my pick, (laughs) because I saw it as you were creating it, which is pretty amazing just to witness it. Um, It's called Fish and Chips. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, you know, it's quite topical just now because I don't know if you've heard about the Seaspiracy documentary. No, I haven't. It's a it's a new documentary that was done by the same people that did c- cowspiracy, critiquing the beef industry. This is about um, uh, it's a Netflix one, and it's been trending across the world. I haven't seen it myself yet, but there's lots of chatter about it. It is. Um, basically uh, putting the declining state of oceans squarely at the feet of the fishing industry. And your piece is sort of about that. And it's obviously a very serious topic, but as you say, you try to inject some humour into your stuff. So um, I picked it because I thought it was a very good representation of that. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that and what prompted you to create it as well?
0: I saw online this quote from the Old Testament in which an angel commands the birds to descend from the sky and eat the humans, which I immediately made me think of all these tabloid stories about people having their fish and chips stolen by seagulls. It just made me laugh, and, and I, I loved the idea of doing a, a piece all about that. And, of course, it's lovely because the, the whole British seaside theme is, is already quite comical. You know, you've got saucy postcards and the fairgrounds. There's so many elements to it that are really picturesque and funny and absurd. And the, the dark side of that story, of course, is the, the fact that, you know, why are these birds stealing people's fish and chips? You know, has anybody actually considered that? Because they've been demonised. And I, I wanted to explore that in the piece. So the scene is the, the angel is in the centre of it in a fish and chip van proclaiming this quote from the Bible. But And she has a menu on the side of the van and she, everything's on it except for the fish. There's no fish on it. There's a fishing boat trawling for fish, but the net's empty because there are no fish. There's a helter skelter with uh, the words of the Beatles song Helter Skelter it floating above it and of course that's a, a song about things spinning out of control and the birds are, are descending and all the, the people round about to try and steal their fish and chips but there are gloved hands wearing gardening gloves Emerging from the ground, brandishing trolls as a symbol of nature, defiantly fighting back.
1: They're quite subtle. That's in depth layer. When you sort of look at these little details, um, it, it takes some time to to notice them. And often these are the the funny bits, the unexpected yeah. bits. Do you have a favourite
0: one of these? Well, I do in that particular one, I think. There are two things I like about it. One is the seagull with the fishing net descending on the humans to catch them in this net. But underneath, the, at the very bottom, there's a man clutching his box of fish and chips. And right underneath him, you can see there's a shawarma, which has got lots of tomato ketchup landing on its head. Yes. <laughs> which is coming from this man's fish and chips. And the reason the chihuahua is in there is because when they, this tabloid stuff about uh, birds stealing chips came about, one of the most outrageous stories was the claim that one of these seagulls had swallowed somebody's chihuahua. Yes.
1: So that's why it's
0: in there. <laughs> yes. That's why the poor chihuahua is sitting there with tomato ketchup. Yeah, a total on devil with
1: these details, it's, it's great, um, <laughs> fantastic. And I love just looking for them in all your pieces. Um, is there anything that you're working on right now? Uh,
0: the piece that I'm working on now is is about uh, the empowerment of girls through education, which sounds very dry when you put it like that, but um, it won't be. <laughs> it's it's going to have it's going to include such things as as a stained glass condom, <laughs> some tampons.
1: Things like that. Just the the (laughs) usual stuff that you find in stained glass um, themed art.
0: (laughs) Hmm.
1: Where did that idea come from? I mean, I know that, you know, working with climate change, one of the key climate solutions is to educate girls. Is that the connection you're making or is there some other reasons
0: you picked it as well? It's also because just lately, In the news, you know, there's been uh, uh, so much stuff about, about the way that women are still abused and men get away with it. And I've just felt that maybe it was time to focus on that. Does it go back to your own history in any way? I had always intended on being an artist up until I was about 14 or 15. It was very much my identity. I was always drawing and... When I changed schools at, at fourteen, I had a really horrible art teacher who basically was a bit of a sexist bully, and he completely put me off. And I gave up art completely and didn't take it up again. In all seriousness, until about six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So that, yes, that certainly is one aspect of it. Um, but it just in general, you know, being being a woman artist is it. it we're still. I believe the statistic is 2% in national galleries are, are women artists, which is appalling. And women artists' work is valued at a much, much lower price than male artists. Yeah. But the other thing, as well, is certainly population. Keep the population down.
1: That's Hence the sex education component. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I haven't seen any bits of it, so it'll be quite interesting to see the big reveal. But I guess we're sort of coming to the end, and I just wanted to reflect back on the themes of your work. You know, you've got big issues, as you say, very personal issues in there, but a lot of the environmental issues but as you say, also rights of women, you do that portrayal in very impactful and powerful ways. so i definitely responded to it um, strongly. And some people might classify that kind of art as artivism. How do you feel about such a label and what do you think about the place of art and artists and engaging people in thinking and action on environmental issues or any other issues? Um, I know that, you know, from work on climate change, it's it's – been a frustration for the last twenty years to engage people with facts. So maybe art is the answer. I don't know.
0: Well, it's certainly there is that possibility because it's not dry and it can be more inspiring and fun and motivating. I think you know, people. It's it's difficult because it's climate change. It is depressing and it's difficult and complex. And people will switch off because they just can't cope with it. So if, you, if through art, you can inspire people and encourage people live more, you know, more climate friendly lives, then, then obviously that, that can only be a good thing. But well, personally, for me, it, it's a method of communication. It's, it's, a, it's a language. And I think that, that makes it much more valuable and significant than it just being decorative. I don't want to be preaching to people in the way that Church stained glass maybe did. But I at the same time, you know, just things like the, the, the seagulls being demonised. You know, that's something that people should think about, I think. I think it's important to think about that. One of the ways that I find is useful is to, you know, mock the absurdity of human behaviour. And... This fear of nature that, that we seem to have has, has always been a recurring theme in my work. And if, if that can make people think about their behaviour a bit more, then good thing. Now, um,
1: extending on this idea of um, the, the power of portrayal of humanity's environmental sins. So I'm just sort of drawing parallel to the medieval mm-hmm. um, medium you portray, hell we create for ourselves or sins that we are um, guilty of it's so important to highlight these issues as you say in this way but to me as somebody that works in climate change as, as you say there's lots of anxiety tied into that and lots of grief and lots of quite anger lots of big emotions and to keep going you have to have something to head towards so i'm i'm trying to myself um, start maybe envisioning um, more positive futures, some, some target that we're all heading towards, something desirable that we want to achieve, creating irresistible memories of the future we want to make. So I just wanted to maybe ask you whether you have ever tried to imagine what might be the, you know, the flip side of the hell and the sin, uh, what would be our salvation or maybe the heaven we want to create for ourselves? Do you have, you know, something that drives you forward? Or can you think of anything we can do as individuals, or as communities that might get us out of this mess that we've been creating for a while
0: now? Well, perhaps to look at the nostalgia that we we're all we all love nostalgia and and perhaps think that maybe we don't have to be constantly charging ahead in this great rush, in this great race towards the bottom. And in fact, to change our habits and just slow down and switch off, switch off your brain, switch off the electricity, <laughs> switch off the screen particularly and observe the small things. And at the moment, I don't know if I'm imagining it, but it seems like the stars do seem to be brighter than they, than they were before lockdown. And I think that learning to be differently simply by switching off screens and slowing down and observing the stars or the, the birds or, or whatever you can is it's immensely therapeutic and benefits our climate.
1: Yeah, certainly lockdown sort of gave us a bit of a shock, didn't it? And it's it's reframed with what's possible. And I think one of the Mm. things that I have appreciated, as you say, is this full stop and being able to see things in it from a different
0: angle and connecting to nature. Um, Absolutely. And we keep hearing about this epidemic of bad mental health which for me, it's part of that must be this this habit that we've got into of spending our lives in a race. And so many people just being dragged along with this and the the terrible anxiety and and waste, which in turn creates more anxiety. So that's one thing I've learned from doing stained glass is that it's because it has to be done so slowly. If you can just find a way of living slowly then I think that's, that's a sort of fantastic place to head towards.
1: Yeah, you certainly,
0: I mean, you, the way you talk about how you work, it certainly
1: sounds really rewarding, the slow art you do. As you're talking about the speed of, and the consumption and this race and chaos, I'm thinking about one of your other works, which is, I think, a commentary on Black Friday. I can't remember what the title is. Oh, yes, Black Friday and the Ghosts of Thrift. Yes, the ghosts of thrift. I like that connection because that's this nostalgic look into the past of how we used to just meet up for a cup of tea and, and, and have yes. a. I I was thinking of
0: the way that people used to, women especially, used to go, used to save up for maybe a year or longer to get a new winter coat and then go shopping in a department store. They'd dress up, they'd meet their friends. It would be a big event go shopping in the department store. There was very little choice. And what was there was probably at the limits of their budgets, most of them. And then they'd sit and have a, a nice cup of tea out of a china cup with a nice white tablecloth. And, it, it, it you know, that was very much the way that things used to be. And now to, to put those people in the way that we are now, where fast fashion, disposable coffee cups, you go into, you know, go into somewhere like... Starbucks it's a horrible experience you know it's dirty there's rubbish everywhere there's people sitting there with great big jackets on it's not pleasant it's not beautiful and how sad is it that you've ended up with this Black Friday where people are fighting to buy more rubbish and yeah that's so that that was what that piece was about
1: yeah maybe we should go back to simpler times and simpler pleasures and yeah yeah
0: I think that there's a, there's, a fear, there's a fear of ever saying, you know, things are not as good as they were. Perhaps that's still considered a bit of an embarrassing thing to say, but in fact, in a, in a lot of respects, I think, you know, only being able to buy one coat <laughs> maybe is a great thing, you know, just buy that one coat and really treasure it mm-hmm.
1: and mm-hmm.
0: drink your tea out of a china cup because it does taste much better. <laughs> Just to finish, obviously, everybody
1: wants to see your work now. Is there um, anywhere apart from the National Museum of Scotland we will be able to see your work?
0: Yes, there's the kilmorack Gallery near Bewley. Mm-hmm. They always have some of my work in there. And in July, if all goes to plan, there will be an exhibition at Antobar Art Centre on Mull. I also have in, in England and Wales... I have some work in an exhibition called We Are Commoners, which is about commoning. It's an organisation called Craft Space. So, um, well, thank you for chatting to me. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Don't forget to have a look at Pinky's pieces linked in the episode notes. It's really worthwhile exploring all the details in your own time. And I hope you get to see some of them in real life as they are often even more beautiful in person. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, review and share it as it helps us reach wider audiences. And next month, we'll be talking about Plant Life's No More May campaign and how rewilding your garden lawn can help our disappearing pollinators. Until then, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more Tayport Community Garden stories and for information on how to get involved visit our website on www.tayportgarden.org